I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. The COVID-19 pandemic has made it abundantly clear how important tenant protections are for keeping people housed. Congress recognized that and did something about it. So did California. The state had $5.2 billion to distribute for its rental relief fund. But now those funds are running short and any lingering protections expire soon in March. Local governments have also done a lot to limit evictions, especially in San Francisco and Oakland. That's where we heard the loudest voices against evictions. But now the battleground for tenant evictions have moved to areas that are much quieter, the suburbs. Groups that are among some of the most vulnerable to eviction are folks who were priced out of bigger cities and had to move to more affordable areas like Antioch and San Pablo. You can probably guess they're predominantly communities of color and they're at the highest risk of being displaced once again. Now these once sleepy suburbs are facing pressure to act. Chronicle reporter Lauren Hepler is here to talk about the challenges of tenant protections in Bay Area suburbs and how evictions are playing out there. Later, I'll be joined by housing researcher Tim Thomas, who is the research director of UC Berkeley's Urban Displacement Project. He calls evictions a civil rights issue, and he'll explain why the struggles in suburbs are highlighting that concern. Let's start with Chronicle reporter Lauren Hepler. Lauren, thanks for joining me on Fifth Emission. Thank you for having me. So, Lauren, news coverage about evictions often talk about bigger cities in the Bay Area like San Francisco and Oakland, where people are super vocal about tenant protections. What differentiates protections in those cities from suburbs like Antioch or San Pablo? Yeah, that's definitely true. There's a big difference in sort of activism and the number of attorneys that are available in big cities like San Francisco and Oakland. But the other big difference is that there are actually different laws in a lot of suburbs versus the big cities. So suburbs largely don't have their own eviction laws, um, which is why we've seen some big fights in recent years over limiting evictions or things like rent control in sort of affluent suburbs like Mountain View and also places in the East Bay, including Richmond. But what's happening now is that as the population kind of sprawls farther out, which we've seen obviously increase a bit during the pandemic, with uh, remote work, uh, we're seeing these battles now over eviction protections in suburbs that maybe weren't always in the headlines. Um, As it stands now, places like Antioch and San Pablo are mostly governed by state laws, um, namely a big one in 2019 that put some basic limits on evictions uh, when it's not a tenant's fault. It also capped rent increases at about 10% per year. What we're seeing now is sort of drilling into the details a bit more on things like what happens if a landlord wants to renovate an apartment and raise the rent. Um, Those are conversations that hadn't been happening as much in the suburbs previously. So in your story, you describe these suburbs as being, quote, ill-prepared. Can you explain that more? I mean, especially in this moment, is it because evictions are on the rise and we're just seeing that cities are struggling to navigate all of them? Yeah. So, I mean, 
people probably recall ever since the early days of COVID-19 shutdowns, um, when we started to see some unprecedented eviction bans in California and across the country, um, there was a lot of anxiety about, well, what happens when these bans lift? Are we going to see an eviction cliff is often what was talked about. And while evictions in California still appear to be below sort of historic levels, they're on the rise again. Um, In Contra Costa County, we saw that there was a big jump just from 2020 to 2021 in the number of sheriff lockouts that were happening. And that's just sort of one glimpse into the number of evictions that are happening. The other thing I meant by ill-prepared is just places don't have laws in place already for very specific types of evictions in a lot of cases. Um, And they also don't have staff in smaller suburbs. Like in San Francisco and Oakland, you've got entire housing departments that do this work. And that's not the case in smaller places with fewer resources. So what do tenants in suburbs, what can they do? I mean, what does the work of tenant advocates look like in these areas? Do they even exist in these suburbs? Yeah, that's something that is really changing quickly. Um, There's a large statewide advocacy group called ACE that now has a Contra Costa County branch, and they've been responsible for recently bringing some potential tenant protection ordinances to the city councils in places like San Pablo and Antioch, these ones we're talking about. And when you talk to their organizers, what they're really doing day to day is door knocking when allowed by COVID restrictions and also just like kind of staying in touch with people. Like we spoke with one woman, Carmen Ponce, who um, is a renter in Antioch, and she at one point had gotten an eviction notice um, and was actually starting to pack her things. And in her case, she was worried about having to potentially live in her car. Um, And then a tenant advocate happened to call her just to check in and like see how things were going. And he said, no, 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 don't leave like stay and fight this case. But a lot of times, obviously, that in for her, that was sort of lucky timing. There are other cases where that doesn't happen. And your latest story spotlights this, you know, the cases of three different renters in these suburbs. I want to zero in on what's happening in San Pablo, which is actually my hometown. There, tenants in an apartment building are being evicted because of building upgrades that the landlord wants to make. Tell me more about that case. It seems to highlight the fact that these kinds of no-fault evictions are really taking place out here. Yeah, I I mean, I want to know more about what you think as somebody who grew up there. But this case in particular revolves around this 14-unit apartment building. They're called the Porto Apartments, and they're actually tucked behind a popular uh, Italian restaurant in town. And there was an ownership change just a couple years ago before the pandemic where the owner of the restaurant also bought the apartment building. And that came with a lot of longtime renters, like a woman I spoke with, Anita Mendoza, who had lived there for now she's been there for 28 years. Um, and according to lawyers who represent Mendoza and other tenants, they say this landlord first tried to serve tenants 30-day eviction notices as soon as he purchased the property. Um They say some left then, and since then, those who have remained have kind of fought off um, a series of other eviction notices. Um, This has really come to a head, though, um, in the last month, where on January 19th, the day after a lot of this was discussed at a city council meeting, the landlord actually moved forward and filed a formal eviction lawsuit, um, which technically is called an unlawful detainer. Um, In this case, the landlord says it's actually like a substandard property that needs to be 
brought up to code, but the the tenant advocates say it's really just a matter of the landlord wanting to update the property so that he can charge higher rent. Some cities do have protections in place that say if you um, displace tenants for a renovation, you have to offer them the opportunity to come back at the same rates they've been paying. Uh, but like in the case of the San Pablo building, um, the, the tenant I spoke with has her one bedroom for almost three decades where the rent is $450 a month and the new rent would be about triple that. So the math just doesn't work out. And the question now is what's going to happen? Do do the landlords have to eat that cost? Uh, Is there some sort of intervention where the city or a government agency would get more involved to regulate all of this? And that's the kind of tension that I think we're going to see coming to a head in a lot more places. So that particular tenant was there for three decades. And just with my familiarity with Contra Costa County, I mean, there are a lot of renters in that county and it's been that way for a long time. So why is it only just now that the city is trying to grapple with tenant protections in in a new way? Yeah, it's a good question, because like you say, um, San Pablo in particular is two thirds renters. Um, But what tenant advocates will tell you is that they still don't have much political power. Um, There there just hasn't been really that infrastructure there to get tenants organized, you know, like get people to write letters to the city council and show up and fight if something is at a city meeting. Um, And, you know, this happens all over the Bay. Like people talk about this in Oakland and San Francisco, too. At the end of the day, it's about turning out the people who are affected by policies to, to sort of fight for them. I think the question now is whether the really, really intense pressure of the pandemic and the dire financial situations a lot of people have been put into um, will sort of change that dynamic. But I think it's important to keep in mind that like in a lot of places, this is still a pretty uphill battle. We just saw in Sacramento last week, kind of the most high profile eviction bill of this year, which would have limited the Ellis Act, which is kind of this big thing that folks know about in San Francisco, where landlords can evict people by taking the apartment off the market, uh, which we actually talked about on this podcast. That bill just died before it even came to a full vote in the Democratic controlled legislature. So there's kind of this this tension between, okay, there's a lot of activist attention on this right now, but at the end of the day, it's going to come down to whether city councils and other government bodies act on this. I think this is just the beginning. I'm already hearing about more tenant organizing campaigns in places like Walnut Creek, in Concord. There's even eviction cases popping up in really affluent suburbs like Palo Alto. So it's going to be a big thing to watch, I think, in the year ahead. Another thing is that the state's eviction moratorium and rent relief programs, which you mentioned, seem to mediate the relationships between landlords and tenants for some time. But now all of that has ended. So are these relationships getting more fraught since there isn't a lot of clarity from the state on how to navigate all this money owed in back rent now? Yeah, I mean, the the fact that the state stepped in and it's using federal money, but the state stepped in and said, we're going to help distribute $5.2 billion for rent debt. Like nothing like that has ever happened on that scale. So this was a massive undertaking. And a lot of tenant advocates said, this is huge. Like this can dig a lot of people out of like deep, deep financial holes. But what's happening now is that in some areas, there are concerns about the money getting depleted, like already having run out. There's concerns about fraud in some cases, like who really has gotten the money. There's just a lot of uncertainty on on both sides. So it's all very complicated, like how this much government money flows out. But we're kind of getting to the point where like, 
the rubber meets the road and like this this timeline is coming up in March where um, the fewer eviction protections that are left are going to expire. So I think it's only going to kind of continue to mount until then. The other challenge seems to be that we all know that the Bay Area has this acute housing shortage crisis and development will address that. Are these suburbs also walking sort of this fine line of remaining attractive to developers and landlords as well? Yeah. So, I mean, that explicitly came up in San Pablo. The the mayor said, whoa, 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 before we get into talking about these types of eviction protections, we need to make sure we don't turn off developers. We want to be an appealing city where they want to come and build apartments. So those types of political calculations are definitely part of this, whether they're acknowledged or not. You also already see a difference, though, in in Bay Area suburbs, like some of them are building more than others. When I was driving around Antioch a couple weeks ago, there were all these advertisements for new subdivisions that are popping up when we know that's not necessarily the case in inner Bay Area cities where like every single apartment can be a big fight. So that's going to be definitely something to keep an eye on in in terms of how suburbs are, are navigating that. You mentioned this state bill that died on the assembly floor. It didn't even go up for a vote that would have given a lot of tenant protections. So what can be done now? Does it have to be done at the state level or is it really just up to local governments now to decide what they're going to do? Yeah, I think that's a question a lot of politicians and advocates are asking themselves right now because, um, yeah, now that now that there was another sort of recent high profile failure on the tenant side at the state level, it's like, OK, that brings more pressure back to the local level. Like maybe that's the route we should go. But certainly it's not a new dynamic in California to see like the Realtors Association and the California Apartment Association on one side against tenant groups. I think it's safe to say like at both the state and local level, we're going to see more of those kind of clashes. Um, it, but the question is sort of what's what's the outcome? Like, has it gotten to a point where policymakers decide like, OK, we, we really do need to act now? And what do they choose to prioritize? Lauren, thank you so much for your reporting. I appreciate you explaining it to me. (laughs) Thank you for your time. Lauren Hepler covers housing for The Chronicle. Her story about Bay Area suburb evictions is online now at sfchronicle.com and on The Chronicle app. After a quick break, I'm joined by Tim Thomas, a housing researcher from UC Berkeley's Urban Displacement Project. He says the lack of tenant protections in suburbs is a longstanding issue that goes back decades. That's why he calls evictions a civil rights issue, and he'll explain how his research backs that up. You're listening to Fifth Admission. You can support the newsroom that creates this podcast by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Tim Thomas is the director of research at UC Berkeley's Urban Displacement Project. His work examines eviction data and how population changes in neighborhoods have made tenants vulnerable in Bay Area suburbs. Tim, thanks for being here. It's really a pleasure to be here, Cecilia. Thanks. So, Tim, you're a data guy, and you lead the Evictions Study Project, which has done a deep look at the effectiveness of tenant protections across the Bay Area during the pandemic. Tell me, what's different about the suburbs? Well, what we're seeing is that a lot of evictions are happening in areas like in Contra Costa County and uh, near San Jose. Uh, Those two counties uh, have the highest rate of eviction in the Bay Area in particular. 
And we, we, when we look a little bit closer down at the city level and the census tract level, it's happening in, inside the cities of Antioch, areas where uh, we know that there has been black displacement too. These are the destinations of black displacement. And so, and, and in fact, you know, uh, cities like Oakland see the lowest number of evictions. And this is largely due to those tenant policies that were put in place to protect tenants are definitely doing their job. What's, what's concerning is that lack of policy protection in those suburban areas really are impacting and increasing the rate of eviction for populations that are at risk of eviction. And aside from the lack of tenant protections in these areas, what else makes tenants in suburbs particularly vulnerable? The biggest reason for uh, eviction is non-payment of rent. And recently, because of COVID-19, a lot more households have fallen into that population of not being able to pay their rent. What's interesting is that there's actually some evidence that it's not just about non-payment of rent. During the pandemic, the CDC and the state of California enacted moratoriums to prevent eviction. But in reality, there were still, you know, evictions going on. You know, what concerns me most is a data point that we'll never be able to measure is people that were threatened to be evicted and didn't know their rights. And so they may have left even before they were given a notice to evict. So you're seeing a lot of vulnerable populations that have lack of counsel. Uh, you have lack of uh, well-paying jobs in some of these spaces without a higher education degree. So it's, you know, where they're living is compounding the risk of being forced into, you know, displacement. And irregardless of how we feel about things, the data shows that uh, things like the highest proportion of black households or some sort of diversity really is one of the biggest predictors of eviction. It's something that we just have to acknowledge and deal with. You have said before that evictions are a civil rights issue and that they're the result of long-standing inequalities. Can you expand on that a bit more as it applies to the Bay Area? It's a civil rights issue to me because, by and large, I almost don't need to do research on you know evictions anymore because every single city that we look at, every single time, Black households are incredibly overrepresented in the process. Here in California and the Bay Area, uh, areas like Contra Costa County, the lockout rate where its uh, sheriffs are actually removing tenants is 6.3%. That's about three times higher than just the unlawful detainer rate. You know, just the fact that black households are facing lockouts almost two to three times higher than white households are facing lockouts shows me that there's something deeper going on. You see this long-lined history of keeping BIPOC households in poor conditions, right? This prevents them from being able to accrue generational wealth. And that's not to say that a lot of households have been able to break out of that and achieve class mobility. But by and large, a lot of the laws uh, that were designed in the past were racialized and now continuing today. And so to me, evictions is a civil rights issue because plain and simple, it doesn't matter how you believe, the data keeps pointing to this massive racial difference in who's getting evicted versus who's not. The pandemic has laid bare so many vulnerabilities, including you know the precarious living situations of so many Bay Area residents. We saw the state take action with the eviction moratorium and the rent relief program, but those were only temporary. What do you think is most critical in preventing more displacement and worse yet, homelessness? Does that mean stronger action on the state or federal level, or is it really going to be left up to local cities to figure this out? <laughs> 
You know, I think that it's going to be up to local cities to establish uh, laws to help protect tenants, but it's going to be up to the Fed to help provide the dollars to, to really fund these uh, efforts, right? The eviction rental assistance was one of the biggest steps towards some sort of equity for a population that, you know, even before the pandemic, were facing a lot of issues. And all of a sudden, as unemployment came up, this really compounded the problem that households faced. There has to be some fundamental resource to help uh, ameliorate uh, this issue of rising rents and the inability to afford those rents. So that's where the Fed needs to come in. And then, you know, local state policies need to make sure that there's not discrimination from uh, a landlord's side on a tenant for whatever reason. It should be easier to prove discrimination to some degree. There also needs to be legal support. So there has to be a, a provision to provide an attorney to folks that are facing eviction. I think similar to when uh, you're accused of a crime, you're provided a public defender. I think anybody who's given an eviction notice should also have the number of a free public defender on the notice right then and there. Right now, uh, landlords, about 95 to 98 percent of landlords have legal representation, where in some areas, two to five percent of tenants have legal representation. That's increased to 25 percent in certain areas because there are uh, housing justice law projects in those cities to help, you know, tenants navigate this very, very awkward system. I mean, I have a Ph.D., but if I was to get evicted, I wouldn't know where to start legally, you know. So that process needs to be established. I mean, it feels like we've just seen this domino effect of high costs of living and rising rents in cities like San Francisco and Oakland, pushing people out to the suburbs. Now they're particularly vulnerable and facing lack of tenant protections. As someone who has looked at evictions so closely, you know, what do you sort of fear is going to happen to now these populations living in these suburbs trying to trying to stay essentially yeah that's that's a great question cecilia i think one of the biggest problems first of all is cities don't recognize their role in the regional kind of wave that happens so what happens in san francisco impacts oakland impacts antioch impacts sacramento so we're right now seeing even a you know a second wave of displacement where a lot of households are moving to sacramento too and you know, there kind of needs to be a, a preparation and recognition that this is just part of the ecology of migration, you know. Um, so I think it's important to have more of a regional perspective when we look at this rather than just a city-specific one. You know, if, if we really want to see that kind of change, we, we, we need to recognize the role that that each city plays in kind of pushing folks out that way. In a lot of ways, it's requiring us to restructure how we think about municipal laws and and relationships between different cities. There has to be kind of a, a recognition of that. Tim, thank you so much. This was such great and helpful context to this really complex issue. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. It's a real pleasure. Tim Thomas is the research director for UC Berkeley's Urban Displacement Project. You can learn more about it at urbandisplacement.org, and you can find his data research about evictions at evictions.study. Thanks to Taya Francesca Price for producing this episode, and thanks to you for listening. 